right, lovely listeners, and welcome to the, I can't believe I'm saying this, third episode of The Dreaded Lurgy with Laura from Lily Belt. And Kylie von Sale. Woohoo! Laura, it's day five. Six? Six. Day six. They've all blurred into one of lockdown. How are you feeling? I am feeling like I've never loved FaceTime so much in my life. Seeing people's faces, I didn't realize I was face dependent, but I am. Are you? Yeah. It's lucky you were such a handsome man then. Oh, my boy. For our, for, our, for our listeners who have not met Laura's lovely fiance, he is a paragon of masculinity. He um, is. And he's also a very woke bay, which is a. Um, In romance novel parlance, he is a cinnamon roll hero. That's a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Cinnamon rolls, however, are the polar opposite of what we're talking about today. We are going in with another disease that probably will kill you. Oh, yeah. So, listeners, Kylie's going to hit us with the facts. Well, the name, Kylie's going to hit us with the name, and it is... Marburg virus disease. Da-da-da-da! I'm trying to be specific here. I don't want to call it Marburg virus because that is the name of the virus. And just saying Marburg is sort of not specific enough for me. So it's Marburg virus disease. Although in this podcast, we will refer to it as Marburg virus or just Marburg because saying Marburg virus disease gets long. It does not roll off the tongue. It does. It does. We, we've we got a 30-minute target and uh, two extra words. You all know what we mean. I mean, really, we're not digressing into a tour of the factory towns of Germany. It's true, although that um, would be very interesting. I would be into that. Yes, it would. I, I find I found Germany's industrial history fascinating. And you are, of course, a Germanophile. Oh, I do. I do. I love it, of, I love it, I love it, I love it. You infect Sprechen to do uh, it. Ein bisschen, yeah. One tiny thing, though, that I, I thought I loved, but now I have to kind of revisit a little bit, is bats. Let's talk about bats, baby. baby. Let's talk about bats i can't (laughs) (laughs) so bats are the natural reservoir what a word for the marburg virus the bats are the reservoir for all sorts of things that will kill you in a horrible manner true story Uh, it's a long list and here are two fun facts about bats that i did not know that i'm a little bit one i'm embarrassed about and one i'm not embarrassed about hit me the first is they're the only flying mammals, which that's the one I'm embarrassed about, that I did not kind of think that through. And the one that I'm not embarrassed about is that they make up a quarter of all mammals are bats in terms of species number. When you told me that, right, so I told a lot of people and not many of them believed me. They were like, no, hang on. One person who shall remain unnamed was like, are you sure that's not beetles? And then we had a brief but entertaining skirmish about how I had said mammals. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I find it. I mean, that's a lot of bats. So Right? I had no idea that there was such diversity. I, mean, I love bats. I find bats endlessly appealing. I will listen to whatever you want to tell me about bats, even now that I know that they are basically nature's hand grenades. They are little hand grenades, aren't they? Well, here's a fun mm. little thing. They kind of blow themselves up a little bit. Yeah, well, what's going on with that? In a cellular way, because flying is so exhausting, that they actually get damage is done to their DNA, and oh. these kind of bits of DNA break off. Now those bits 
that's usually what a virus or bacteria or it's like some kind of naughty invader might look like in their blood system or in their bodies. Yeah. And so the the expected response is like, okay, let's go in with the white blood cells, let's invade, let's like, and then of course inflammation comes as a side effect of that. Um, these funny little things, they just don't react the way every other mammal would react to these bits of free-floating DNA. There is an awesome yeah. video that explains this, and I will link it in the show notes. Always wanted to say that. And he does yes. a much better yes, job right. of explaining this super weird phenomenon. It is a super weird phenomenon. I'm slightly freaked out by that. Like, they just shut off part of the inflammatory response. I know, right? They're just like, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And then they don't. Amazing. Evolution, amazing. Is this all bats, like fruit bats and insectivorous bats alike? I don't know. I assume I mean, so. They all fly. So no, it must be. They all yeah. fly, so this must happen to them. But the, the bats, that, the specific bats that carry the super manky diseases, like they're the ones that the researchers studied because they're the ones where they're like, oh, lol, Ebola, Marburg, etc. What up? Let's, let's, let's just check what's happening over here, Mr. Bat. Specifically, the Egyptian roussette bat or the Egyptian fruit bat. I have seen these bats in person um, and they are extremely cute. Are they? They are so adorable. Um, when oh. I used to live in Makanda, uh, there was a fruiting, like a, I have no kind of, no idea what kind of tree it was, but I would sit in the doorway of my uh, cottage and um, look at the bats. Uh, I, the first time I saw a fruit bat, I couldn't quite believe it. I thought that's a, that pigeon's outlaid, but it was in fact an Egyptian reset. <laughs> you get them everywhere. You get them all the way up to Pakistan. Um, and uh, wow. but they prefer to be near, yeah, they, they like living near um, sort of, uh, orchards, so you don't see that many of them here in well where we are, particularly because we're quite far from the nearest orchard. But they're quite um, they're quite common in uh, fruit growing areas, obviously being fruit bats. Um, and where I used to live was quite near extensive citrus orchards. Now I'm not sure how much they care about an archie, which is a satsuma. For those of you who do not know the delight of an archie, um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot more. I, I believe there are quite a few of them up in uh, Limpopo province and Mpumalanga and uh, Northwest, which are our tropical regions of South Africa. And you get them all the way up to just about like India and parts of Pakistan, I think. That's amazing. They're everywhere. Oh, bats. I'm scared of you and I love you at the same time. Well, this is kind of putting a kink in my plans, right? So I've always wanted to go to Mount Elgin National Park, which is in Kenya, I think. Um, mm hmm. And the and the uh, there's a adjacent one just across the border in Uganda. Um, we will come back to Uganda. Um, and uh, I'd love to go because there's a there's a cave called called Kitum Cave, which I've always wanted to see because it's a petrified forest. But it turns out it's also full of fruit bats and what and fruit bat guano and what that is heaving with is a uh, Marburg, Marburg virus. virus. Yeah. Uh, just a fun fact about the name, Marburg virus. So for a disease that's found predominantly in Africa, it has the most Germanic name. And that is because there was an outbreak in 1967 in three European cities, Marburg, Frankfurt, and Belgrade, because scientists had imported African green monkeys for lab work. That's a vervet. So Monkey. I think... I think that that's karma. I think that, that 
I'm okay with that. Although, no, I feel bad just saying that right now. No one deserves to die. Well, it was a vaccine production facility, so... (laughs) It's true. I feel very bad about that. I take that all back. If there was a way to get vaccines without experimenting on animals, um, and I'm sure there will be one day, uh, then doing it. But I think right now, or certainly back in 1967, there was no other way to do it. Um, Nevertheless. Yeah. Are you going to tell me about the disease now? Because this disease is epic. I am going to tell you about the disease. Uh, It is a nasty, nasty bastard and not as deadly as you might think. Both of those things are true simultaneously. It's not as deadly as Ebola as far as we know, but it turns out, and I did not know this, that Marburg is actually um, not as... It's kind of like the um, always the bridesmaid, never the bride of hemorrhagic fevers because Ebola gets the... <laughs> that, is not a, that is not a problem. That is the solution because it's not actually very well studied because e- Ebola, which is found in roughly the same area, and um, I think sometimes bats carry... Uh, both um, mm. Ebola tends to be a lot more deadly and gets a lot more media attention as a result but um, uh, Marburg t- is is not as widely studied and it tends to it does far at least it's had much smaller outbreaks um, which means that it's not yeah, the numbers seem much smaller yeah it does far I mean we, we might be the thing with hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic fevers particularly in the um, West African and Central African context is that reporting is just not good so um there might have been much higher numbers we just don't know about. Uh, I have some reasons for that, but we'll get into that a little bit later around why reporting might be so low when, I mean, you're bleeding from your eyeballs, you would think. But factors, circumstances. So that's a teaser of what's to come. Yes. Stay with us. Right. But to give a to give a brief rundown of um, what happens to you when you get Marburg, Okay, brace yourself. Buckle up. Buckle up. The word we're looking at here is systemic dysfunction. Right? Ooh. Yeah. Right in there with the big guns. Nasty, nasty mofo. Right? Bless you, Lunga, in the background. Okay. Yes, everyone, that was Lunga. It is caused by a filovirus, which is a thread-like virus, much like Ebola. They are the same shape. If you Google Marburg virus, they look a little bit like a pipe cleaner, like a very fat pipe cleaner that's been twisted at one end. Um, they do. That's a good yeah, description. Yeah, yeah no, they're, they're, it's, it's a very, very good. Um, I quite like a filovirus. virus. I find them visually appealing. I don't want one. <laughs> um, yes. Okay, no. <laughs> so your incubation period between being infected and showing symptoms is ranges from two to 21 days. But as usual, the ra- a range that big is not a helpful number. And most people uh, seem to develop symptoms within five to nine days, which is quite fast. It's uh, faster, for example, than uh, COVID-19, which is uh, what I like to refer to because everybody knows everything about that now. COVID-19 is probably going to be the most well-understood disease of the 21st century. Um Right, so you get a you get a, you get infected by this filovirus. It hangs around in your body, replicating itself between five to nine days, and then you enter the generalization phase, which has got the delightful flu-like symptoms, which characterize everything you catch. The world is going to end because somebody goes. I'm sure it's just a little niggle, and they have some like aspirin and honey and lemon, and then we all end up dying. Okay, so first you get a high fever of about forty degrees Celsius. Then you get a headache, 
Then you get body pains and you just lose energy. Malaise is the technical term. And you got chills. And that goes on for about five days. And then you go rapidly downhill. Oh. Fatigue, generalized pain and loss of appetite, vomiting, nausea, abdominal pain, and severe diarrhea. Right? You could also get... Yikes. Conjunctivitis, a rash, difficulty swallowing, and a sore throat. Oh, my God. Then you get into the early organ phase, which start about 5 to 13 days after onset, right? So prostration, which means you just can't do anything. You just lie there. Um, difficulty breathing. Your skin sometimes peels. And uh, what Medscape calls abnormal vascular permeability, um, which means that your blood vessels start leaking. And when that happens, you're going, you're going into the severe phase, right? You end up with uh, petechiae, which are little, um, those of you who read horror novels, horror novels, uh, mystery novels, and police procedurals, and have watched, anybody who's watched CSI will know the word petechiae. It's little starburst hemorrhages under the skin. Um, You will bleed from the mucosal membrane, so your mouth. Nose. Yeah, your nose, your mouth, various other places that have mucous membranes. If you get um, an injection or they take a blood sample, that injection site doesn't clot, keeps, keeps bleeding. You'll have bloody, Jeez. yeah, bloody stool. You'll start vomiting blood, and your your nose will bleed. Um, and your pancreas liver just lots of bleeding. Lots of it's a hemorrhagic fever. You it's characterized by hemorrhage. It's spectacular. This is why hemorrhagic fevers have such media profiles because nothing is more obvious than somebody bleeding. Like that's kind of one of the reasons oh, I suspect that blood is red. It's obvious. It shows up. You know, mm. it's like somebody bleeding is very very hard to miss. Um, and that is why... Kylie, I wish you could see my face right now. I could visualize your face right now. It gets worse. The whole oh, my God. I want to clutch a stuffed toy or a... What? Yeah, it gets worse. I mean, I don't always talk okay. to people about that. It's okay. horrible. People die. Um, okay, your pancreas, your liver, and your kidneys are starting to, like, fail. Um, then you get the critical phase. Oh, my God. There's a phase after severe? Yeah. Um... Basically, what happens after from here on is that you either you go one of two ways: either you go the way of those who are going to die, or you recover. Recovery is only better than dying because you don't die. It's not actually fun, and a lot of people end up with it's got fairly horrible symptoms of its own. But I digress. Right. So you are by now severely dehydrated because it's very very difficult to keep your blood pressure and your fluids up if you're just bleeding from everywhere. You're having multi-organ failure. You're probably in shock. Your blood is no longer clotting at all. Um, or it's clotting in all the wrong places. So you're both bleeding and cl- you're bleeding where you don't need to be bleeding and clotting where you don't need to be clotting. Um, you may have seizures. And then if you are going to die, which they call the, in medical parlance, is called the pre-agonal stage. Um, agonal usually means the death stage. You will have neurological symptoms, um, aggression, confusion, dementia, restlessness, um, and probably ending in coma. And if you're going to die, you usually die about sort of a week to two weeks, give or take a few days after you start showing symptoms. However, not everybody gets there. Some people start recovering and convalescing, which is called the recovery and convalescent phase. No surprises there. Which is, you're not going to die, but you're still going to feel like shit for quite a long time. So you will have muscle pains, joint pains. You, your liver will be swollen because it's taken a really hard hit, so you'll get hepatitis. Your eyes will be probably not quite right because eyes are very vulnerable to changes in the body. Actually, this is why your um, optimal, your um, 
optometrists can actually tell you quite a lot about your general health just by looking at your eyes, which is why you should always go for your eye checks because they can tell if they're very, very good indicators. They are truly the window of the soul. Um, Some people experience psychosis and depression, although that's hardly surprising that you'd be depressed because you've been feeling like death for two weeks and you have very nearly died. So that's normal. Um, Yeah. And that's kind of where you are. Um, you will you will probably need to be in hospital for quite a long time. Your skin may peel, but you are not going to die. Is this one of those diseases where the treatment is almost as bad as having the disease itself, or is the treatment blessedly pain-free? Well, that very much depends, because treatment is actually symptomatic. So all they can really do is keep you hydrated. They just keep you comfortable. You'll be hydrated. Um it's it's um, supportive care, so you'd be ventilated if you need to be ventilated, if you're anywhere near a ventilator. Um, Ooh, hot topic. It reminds me of a tweet I saw this week, which is, how would you explain, to, to somebody who'd been in a coma since the day before Donald Trump was elected, how would you explain, you know, the time between then and now? And somebody's like, I wouldn't explain. I would just ask them if they were done with the ventilator. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, facts are facts. Right. Fact. <laughs> Okay, so uh, treatment is supportive. Um, Rehydration is very important because you are losing. That's actually basically dehydration and shock that kill people most of the time. You just lose. It's it's just it's just so much. You just lose so much of what your body is seventy percent water, right? And um, you just lose so much of your blood volume, and your organs are like failing because what they need to function is they're not getting it, and there's bleeding, and you're losing fluids here, and fluids aren't getting to there, and you're in pain because everything um, when your capillaries block. Um, which they do. Um, it's extreme pain. Your skin is perhaps peeling. It's extremely uncomfortable, but so all they can really do is keep you comfortable. There's no so pain vaccine. Relief. Yeah, pain relief, rehydration. That's kind of it. There's not much they can do. Um, I think. Yeah. So there's no vaccine. There's no treatment, really. Like, there's no treatment for Marburg virus disease. There's just like. symptomatic support. Yeah, there's also not that much research going into treatment because not very many people get it. And um, as always happens, when the few people that get it are in Africa, big pharma, they're like, oh, what? Oh, sorry, but sorry, we're really busy working on, you know, 900th high blood pressure drug. Um, So some some animal models are showing promise. Like they've managed to, um, I think, they've managed to devise a vaccine which works on hamsters, but for some reason what works on animal models doesn't translate to humans. And obviously, it's quite difficult to test whether a vaccine is with something like Marburg virus because if you get it wrong, you know. Um, so they've tried they've tried many things, but it turns out some lab animals aren't even susceptible. So, for example, monkeys will die, um, hamsters go down, rats, mice, but ferrets are unaffected. Oh, go little ferret! There's a lot. There's a lot they don't know. There's there's a lot they don't know about this virus. I think it's because I'm not sure if ferrets are an old world species. Because some of these hemorrhagic fevers only affect what they call old world species and not new world species. I'm not sure about Marburg in particular because I'm a twit and didn't check this. But um, African monkeys like vervets, colobus monkeys, and some rhesus monkeys, African species will be affected. But North uh, North well, South American monkeys like howler monkeys and capuchins aren't. Wow. And they're not sure why that is. Yeah, but they evolved on a separate continent with, you know, so they think that whatever makes African monkeys susceptible. Um, I'm not sure about Asian species. I didn't think to check, but I imagine because the landmass is contiguous that they might be susceptible. I will come back to that in a future episode on hemorrhagic viruses. Yes, because there are more of these viruses. Oh, there are so many, and they're all absolutely fascinating, to me at least. Um, and to me. <laughs> no, and to you, yes. No, I know. 
Um, but you see, I don't seem to have the, oh my God, horror response that you do. Because I don't know why I don't have it's that true. response. It would be more sensible to have it, right? I shouldn't, I shouldn't not have that response. It's weird. Well, we need one of us to remain calm while I freak out, even though I kind of know what to expect. I mean, it's a hemorrhagic fever. I still am like, what, what, what? You gradually get more and more pallid. It's not that bad. Um, so there's no, your prognosis is like, huh? best of luck. So I saw some rates anywhere between 25% and 100% for each of the different outbreaks in terms of mortality rate. That's correct. Um, there are several There are several different um, strains because it's not the same virus causing all the outbreaks either. So they're all, they're like different members of the same family. There's Musoke, which is quite bad. There's um, Angola, which is possibly the most dangerous one so far. Um, it's, a, it's a hell of a thing, Marburg virus. And we're very lucky that it hasn't got more of a foothold than it has. So you mentioned outbreaks, and there's there's two particular outbreaks that I find interesting just because of the research that's been done on them. One is pretty big, and the other one is pretty small, actually. One was in, I'm going to say this wrong, but I'm going to try, Kabale in Uganda in 2012. 14 people were infected, and seven died. Wow. That's a 50%. So 50%, but like quite a small outbreak in comparison to for example the hundreds that ebola kills yeah but what i found really interesting is that there's a great paper on so the, the what is left after the epidemic passes because the epidemic Ooh. will end be it COVID 19 be it ebola be it barberg they don't go on indefinitely and they focus yeah. specifically on the health workers and the impact on health workers after an epidemic. Yeah. But to look at that, you have to look at how the, how the health workers experienced the epidemic in the first place. And it blew my mind. Yeah. Because we're so entrenched in Western medicine and like you go to the doctor and what have you, I'm relatively ignorant of the role that, for example, traditional healers have. Oh, yeah. And the the ways in which you can't just push one system out of the way and assume that everyone's going to kind of cooperate with that. There's a huge amount of resistance to it, understandably. So we have... Mm -hmm. So in the study, they interviewed um, a variety of health workers, be it all the way from kind of top physicians down through to nurses' assistants. And the thing that they found most common in the community was, un and surprisingly, depression. In terms of the challenges of psyche, fear and depression were the things that the health workers felt the most. Now, this is the part that blew my mind, is that there were also challenges outside of their psyche, challenges of society. 37% of interviewees were avoided by family and society. Yeah. Um, interviewees described the public as unappreciative because they thought the outbreak was magic, demonic spirits, witchcraft, or health workers perpetuating a hoax for profit. People would go into hospitals and not come out, and so it would be the hospital killing them. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why reporting rates are so low is because people will literally... Mm. 
steal their loved ones away from the hospital or just not report it in the first place. Yeah, that's something I've come across in other contexts. Which is, I mean, it's understandable. Both sides of the story are understandable, which leads me on to the second outbreak that I'm interested in, which is in 2005 with Angola. So in Angola, in a place called Uyghur, U-I-G-E, I'm sure somebody will tell us how to pronounce that. Please, if we have listeners to correct us, that would be amazing because that means we have listeners. So I will take it. (laughs) (laughs) We have at least five. We have at least five listeners and we love you listeners. In this particular outbreak, 252 people contracted the disease. 227 people died. 90% death rate. Good God. Jesus. So who, and I like saying who, even though I should probably say WHO, but who feels like a fun take on a, on a heavy topic? Who? Yes, we need that. They did a study on an anthropological approach to outbreaks, specifically this one in Angola. Because what happened is, in this scenario, who came in? And they just kind of took over the place. There was, they needed to deep clean everything. Bodies had to be put in body bags, etc. But they didn't take into account how these actions would be perceived by the community. So, for example, in this instance, Uh white body bags are commonly, well, white, the color white, is commonly associated with ghosts. Oh, boy. You want to check that before going in. To put a body into a white body bag is incredibly disruptive and hurtful to the community. Mid-outbreak, nothing is going right. Health workers are being attacked. They're being kind of dismissed as evil. Witch doctors and traditional healers, more accurately traditional healers, are advising all kinds of things that are counter to actually helping people recover from these diseases. And who had to say, they had to bring in anthropologists, set up all of these community, like communication systems to try and explain why things were happening the way they were happening. And if they could, adjusting what they were doing to better fit what would work for the community. Yeah. So if you have a look at the WHO website, there is a 17-page document on appropriate burial practices. Which you read. And it is genuinely fascinating. So interesting to me. And so if you have a spare five, ten minutes, I would recommend reading it because it is fascinating looking at how it looks at everything from the mo- from who gets to get into the car to go to the family's house to kind of conduct and help with the burial. What they say, how they say it, the equipment that they have, when they put that equipment on, like all of it is covered. By equipment, do you mean PPE? Yes, PPE. The hot, another hot topic of the day. So when the people are with the family, talking to the family, they make sure that the dignity of the person being buried, but also the well-being of the family saying goodbye to their loved one is protected. And first and foremost, 
before anything is done, before any steps are taken, each step is explained in detail to the family members there so that they know what is going to happen to their loved one. Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a job that must leave you feeling very, very fatigued. Yeah, that, that has got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world. And I salute every single person who works for WHO, Médecins Sans Frontières, like all of these organizations, Red Cross. I don't know how... Red Crescent. Red Crescent. I don't know how you find the reserves to do what you do, and it is phenomenal. It really is. So Marburg virus, being a dramatic virus, has dramatic impacts on communities, dramatic impacts on um, health workers, and long-standing societal effects. Something that I'm going to add in, one of the mistakes that the WHO team made initially yeah. Tell me more. was Tell me there more. were so many bodies, they just had to bury them. And they marked them all with crosses, even though not all of the people who were buried were Christian. Okay, you need to check that kind of thing, I guess. And they also, because they did it so quickly, uh, understandable, like people are bleeding, this is intense, like, it's an intense Everything disease. is contagious because every single, every single bodily fluid you shed, even after death, contains huge amounts of the virus, which can infect other people. Exactly. Um, but they mislabeled some of the graves. Oh, no. So from the best of intentions, things just got worse. And so the, the anthropological approach really is about putting human beings at the center of this and like how do we as human beings deal with this disease together even though we're coming at it from really different perspectives and so how did they address that? oh how did yeah. they address it? it was just communication it was just lots and lots of community meetings okay. community leaders all that needed to happen really was that people needed to know what was happening and why and then that took away all of the mystery all of the kind of fear okay. around it uh, you mentioned earlier body fluids re retain the, the virus. Fun fact, infected semen has been documented up to seven weeks after clinical recovery. I'm just not sure you'd feel like having sex like seven weeks after having Mar Marburg, although I may underestimate. So humans. the other place that the virus can be found long after the disease is actually passed is the inside of the eye. If the inside of your eye becomes the outside, you have bigger problems than still having Marburg virus in your body. <laughs> Which the inside story. of your eye is leaking, something else in your life has gone badly wrong as well. Um, True story. A lot of things hang around in the, in, in the inside of the eye. Actually, it's a, it's a, I think it takes a long time to cycle out, as it were. So things tend to hang around out there. In there, really. I'd never thought of the eye as a dangerous place, but really, it is. Well, I used to get the bloody heebie-jeebies when we did dissections at school, and I'm like, um, now, I know that you got this from a butcher, and therefore the animal was fit to eat, but none of us are wearing gloves, and this is... Because I was a nerd and read books, you know. Extremely uncool yeah. to do that in high school, at least in my high school, which is not overpopulated with um, people who read books. Um... And I'm like, what What am I going to, like, if I nick myself with this third-hand scalpel, because I'm getting to dissection class at after after lunch, and other classes have been here first, and I know these scalpels are blunt because everyone's banging them on the edge of the metal dissecting dishes, what am I going to catch? Happily, one of my um, 
classmates who is now in fact a neurosurgeon used to do the dissections and i just used to watch Ooh, over her shoulder clever that's a good strategy to have uh, on that point laura there's a um an outbreak in uganda in 2017 um in i'm going to mispronounce this i think it's Koen district it says queen okay <laughs> like yes queen but i'm pretty sure it's not pronounced like that which is i'm pretty sure in eastern uganda I want to talk about the geographical distribution of this in a second, but I want to go through this outbreak first. So it's from the journal Neglected Tropical Diseases, edition of March 2019. And it's by Nyakara, Huka, Shoemaker, Balinandi, Chemos, Kwesiga, Mule, et al. They are... Actually, you know what? Let's just read this full list of authors because every single one of these people contributed to the information here. And I feel like just because you get listed eighth doesn't mean you did you know, an appropriate, you know, proportionate amount of work. So let's just list all these authors and take a second to appreciate how much work goes into finding out things about outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics. Because at the moment, we're hearing a lot from a few people, and we need to actually appreciate the number of people out there. So I'm going to read the full list of authors for this article. Okay. I'm going to do the surnames. Nyakarahuka, Shoemaker, Balinandi, Chemos, Kwesiga, Mule. Kyondo, Tumosime, Kaufman, Masira, Whitmer, Brown, Cannon, Chiang, Graziano, Morales Petuille, Patel, Zufan, Komakech, Natseri, Chipkuri, Lubarna, Okiria, Kaiwa, Nkonwa, Eyu, Nakaire, Okarikod, Cheptoyek, Wangila, Wanje, Tusime, Butage, Mbesa, Ario, Makumbi, Nakansige, Muruta, Nanyunja, Homzi, Zu, Nelson, Kaleebo, Rollin, Nicole, Klena, and Lutwama, right? All of these people contributed wow. to the information I'm about to tell you. Many of those were community health workers, I think. They don't give affiliations here. Okay. Eastern Uganda. A man who was a farmer and a hunter died. Um, four people were affected, and they all belonged to a single family, and half of them were women. And all of them showed the symptoms of fever, vomiting, abdominal pain, and bleeding from bodily orifices, which is what you get with Marburg. And um, it was a family cluster, which is what they use. And what happened was this man, case one, um, was a head of a family. And he was primarily a farmer, but also a hunter, and also somebody who had, to, who had livestock and um, crops. Right, so not just not a farmer in the way that we might understand it, but a subsistence farmer, I guess. And the area in which he lives, eastern Uganda, is near the border with Kenya, um, and it's actually on the northern slopes of Mount Algon, which I mentioned earlier as the site of Kitum Cave. And Mount Algon's caves have many um, deposits of rock salt, so a lot of farmers go and collect salt for their livestock because nothing a cow loves more than a salt lick. It's quite a mountainous area. Ooh, delicious. Quite a mountainous, yeah, very delicious. Quite a mountainous area, quite forested, so many, many, many bats. Right. So we have bats, we have caves, we have somebody going into the cave, and unsurprisingly, this man became infected. And uh, he was 36 years old, which is basically my age. And um, he started feeling ill. He presented with high fever, vomiting, diarrhea. He was very tired, stomach hurt, joints hurt, muscles hurt. Like, he had hiccups, which is another symptom that's usually a bad sign, apparently. If any hemorrhagic fever, if you get hiccups, it's probably not, your prognosis is not as good as that of somebody who hasn't got hiccups. 
he was referred to hospital. That's interesting. Yeah. And he was, uh, he died sort of five days after going to hospital, which was about, say, nearly two weeks after he started getting sick. And he was buried with routine funeral rites, so traditional funeral rites, which involved family members washing and dressing his body, putting it in the coffin. Right, so nobody's wearing PPE. This is just happening in his home village and his family members following the normal rites of mourning. Now, this man had had no history of exposure to anybody with Marburg, so he was he'd caught it in the wild, so to speak. Um, he probably got it from a bat um, excreta or urine in a cave, um, which he had he had gone to mm-hmm. get salt three weeks before. He showed symptoms in a cave. So three weeks is roughly, it's still within your incubation, possible incubation period. So very, very likely that he was infected there. Then after he died, his sister got sick. She died. And then their brother also got sick. And he died after vomiting blood. They call it coffee ground vomit because semi-digested blood is black and granular and it looks a lot like coffee grounds. There's not something you want to think about first thing in the morning, let me tell you. Um... And they were, by this time, uh, there was a case management team in place. After two deaths, uh, Uganda government had sent people in to get on top of this outbreak before it could spread. And they conducted a burial of the sort that you've described. And they met with protests and violence um, from the community, mm-hmm. partly because they, they had seen, because the final, burying somebody is a sign of respect. And if you are told you can't do it, you might feel like you're not doing right by your deceased relative. And also they weren't entirely convinced that this Marburg virus has such a bad reputation that they didn't want to sort of admit that there was Marburg virus broken out. So they didn't believe, or they said they didn't believe that a member of their community had died of Marburg virus disease. Right. So then that happened. Then uh, the first man's wife died. Mm. Oh God, no, she didn't die. Then the first man's wife caught it, but she survived. And that was luckily where it stopped. But I mean, this this case, um, very much like the one in, Uge- in Angola that you described, is very much the same sort of elements. Community resistance. Um, there was quite a lot of resistance to tracing contacts and monitoring for symptoms and that kind of thing. So basically, yeah. this, this paper sort of concludes that uh, they um, really got a little bit lucky in that it didn't spread further, but that also sending in healthcare people uh, helped, but, you know, kind of helped uh, stop it. And, and all these people initially got treatment from traditional healers and later only sought care from uh, sort of what I call Western biomedicine, um, which is, might have contributed to the high death rate because by the time they went to Western doctors, they were quite sick because I'm not saying traditional medicine doesn't always work, but it didn't work mm. in this case. Um I, f- I feel like Western medicine, nothing really works for hemorrhagic fever. You get you you die, you don't, basically. There's no, it's not like yeah. one set of medicines any better than another. And uh, we're still not on top of this disease. It might, it's not, probably not going to break out and kill everybody, but it's not really going anywhere. And uh, here's a fun fact. It likes to break out near gold mines. Now, that's not going to be an issue in South Africa. Obviously, we have many gold mines here, but it's not going to be that much of an issue because ours are very industrial gold mines. Whereas in places like the Dep- Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's a much more low-tech kind of outfit. Yes. And where do bats like to live? In caves. And what do bats consider a mineshaft to be? A lovely square cave. Or an arched cave. Like 
a lovely, lovely cave. And if you are going in there with a pickaxe and whatnot, and you are maybe not wearing uh, all the protective equipment that you are, you know, by rights are are entitled to wear while doing something as dangerous as mining, um, you are going to perhaps come into contact with it. So a lot of outbreaks are sort of linked to, smaller outbreaks at least, are linked to uh, gold miners and their immediate families. That is um, interesting. And Yes. No, 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 it's very interesting. And obviously, Democratic Republic of Congo has a very rudimentary uh, health infrastructure, um, which, considering they've had how many decades of civil war and unrest have they had now? Like three, four? It feels endless. I think it kind of has been going on since the 60s. I mean, colonialism really, really shafted, well, most of Africa, but particularly Central, <laughs> Central and West Africa. Yes. Um, in, you know, in that kind of uh, context, at least. Angola, likewise, had a war until fairly recently. You don't mm. hear much about Angola these days. They seem to have evened out. Yeah. Um, so well, they're not messy the enough to be top of the... They're not messy enough to be top of the um, the headlines. Yeah, it's just not getting it's just not getting reported. It's probably still happening. Um, yeah, so uh, anywhere with poor health infrastructure is obviously going to have higher death rates. So long story short, Marburg Marburg is a monster, complicated by obviously the resources you have access to, but also complicated for the health workers to deal with. Yes, very complicated for the health workers to deal with. Do you happen to have a figure for the fatality rates for health workers? Um, it varies a lot. Similar to, well, it, okay. the few numbers that I have vary as much as the kind of civilian, quote, uh, death rates vary. I mean, that's that's not reassuring. I was sort of hoping you'd say, oh, nobody ever dies of it. But of course, they must. And that, listeners, is the story of Marburg virus in a and a little podcast nutshell. And see you again for Chicken Pox. <gasps> yes, episode four, Chicken Pox, you guys. Get pumped, a disease we can all relate to. Yes, and if you can relate to Marburg, let us know, because then we really want to hear your story. Mm-hmm.